Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. We've got a busy podcast for you this week. Jeff is talking with former CIA officer Frank Snepp on comparisons between the panicky U.S. evacuation of Saigon in 1975 to what's going on in Afghanistan now. And we'll also be talking briefly with Barry Meyer, author of a recent book on private spying companies about the unfolding NSO Pegasus surveillance scandal. And then there's this. Asking retired by the questions we really wanna know, part 21. Hmm. What weapon system scares you the most? Hypersonic weapons. Can you tell us what secrets you relayed in the icebox? No. Where is the safest place in the world? Probably Antarctica. What level was your security clearance? SCI, top secret. So Jeff, uh, do you use TikTok? No, I've already got enough input in my day. I, I don't follow TikTok either, but my son does. And he brought this to my attention, a hugely successful father-daughter TikTok series about spying and a whole lot more. That's gonna come up later. Yeah, that uh, TikTok thing is a big bubble that I'm just tapping on the outside of, uh, and I'm sure that's to my detriment, but uh, it is what it is. Meanwhile, this week, major stories are unfolding about autocratic regimes using advanced electronic spyware developed by the Israeli firm NSO to penetrate the cell phones of investigative reporters and pro-democracy activists, including associates of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident murdered and dismembered by the regime's assassins in their Istanbul consulate. For a quick take on the scandal, I called up Barry Meyer, the decorated former New York Times reporter and author of Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies. Barry Meyer, welcome back to Spy Talk. What's the most important thing to know about the unfolding NSO Pegasus surveillance scandal? Well, first of all, Jeff, thanks for having me on again. Um, I guess the, the thing I was struck by was how unsurprising it is in many ways. Um, you know, NSO has repeatedly said, uh, you know, we only give our, our surveillance software to governments to use for legitimate purposes. As you know, they're asserting that they had no idea that its software is being used uh, by those governments, possibly to spy on journalists, politicians, social activists, and others. And, and you know, I think, you know... That doesn't hold a lot of credibility, does it? Well, it's not, it's not even a, a point of credibility. It's just, here's the reality you sell your technology to a customer and while you might say to them well we don't want you to use it for this that and the other thing we only want you to use it for this and this purposes what kind of control do you have yeah i mean you know what 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 are you going to do i mean i i think the proof is the pudding is also in the fact that the times had a story just a day before this uh 
big Pegasus project broke about how the government of Israel uh, essentially greenlit the continued uh, sale of, of uh, Pegasus by NSO to the government of Saudi Arabia after the Khashoggi scandal had happened and after NSO had said, we're not going to sell it to the Saudis anymore. Yeah. It's so, astounding. And I, I want to ask the question because you, this is not your first rodeo with Israeli spying firms. Is there anything uh, the United States can do for starters uh, to punish Israel for allowing NSA, NSO Pegasus to sell these wares to regimes like Saudi Arabia? I mean, I don't see how because, you know, there's probably, uh, there may be commercial arrangements between NSO and the CIA or NSO and, and um, the NSA. And, and so, you know, we, you know, yeah, we we'd like to be on our moral high horse when it comes to this type of stuff. But you know, because you probably know this area far better than I do, that you know these types of technologies have long been the stock and trade of uh, U.S. intelligence agencies. So I don't, I really don't see how we no. say to a foreign government, uh, 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 "Let us do this, and you don't do it." No. And, and speaking of people on their high horses, we've, we're now learning from the Washington Post and that consortium reporting that. Uh, Highly regarded figures like Tom Ridge, the former, uh, the first uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, and Juliet Kayem, a DHS uh, official in the Obama administration, and a, a couple of prestigious Washington law firms have all been working for taking money from NSO uh, in the wake of the Khashoggi killing. So, I mean, I, I find that something that there should be wall to wall coverage about. I was reading the Times story about the um, arrangement with the Saudis. So basically after the Khashoggi killing, the uh, NSO hired this high fluting in 2018, you know, some high profile Washington PR shop, you know, it's kind of like former CIA people, blah, 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 State Department people working there, basically, you know, uh, window dressing. So one of those people was was uh, Jeremy Bash, who is on CNN all the time, MSN, MSNBC all the time is kind of a talking head, you know, who's on all the time about the dossier, talking about the dossier. Well, I would like to see MSNBC and CNN bring Jeremy Bash back on and ask him to tell the public what he knew about this and to explain to and for MSNBC to explain to its audience why it never revealed apparently to its viewers every time that Jer uh, Jeremy Bash was on that he had a commercial relationship with NSO. We've only got a minute left because we've got a very packed show this, this week. Uh, and we'll, we'll certainly come back and revisit this, this uh, question because it's not going to go away anytime soon. And in fact, that's my last question to you. How do you see this playing out? You know, I think the only way it's going to play out is with transparency. And as you know, uh, this is a sector of the world 
uh, where uh, transparency is anathema. These are companies and individuals that operate in the shadows. However, I think in cases like fleshing out people like Jeremy Bash, putting them under the spotlight, asking them uh, what they know, that's probably the best we can do right now. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for coming back again on short notice. I've been talking with Barry Meyer, the author of Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and The Rise of Private Spies. Next, there are growing fears that the Taliban will overrun the Afghan capital of Kabul, like the North Vietnamese army did in Saigon in 1975. This week, I called former CIA officer Frank Snepp to discuss the similarities and differences between the two scenarios. In 1977, SNEP authored a scorching account of Saigon's collapse, Decent Interval, an insider's account of Saigon's indecent end. Frank SNEP, welcome to Spy Talk. I've been reading recently about thousands of interpreter translators and even commandos who worked with U.S. forces in Afghanistan being left behind. If that's not reminiscent of Saigon's collapse, I don't know what is. What do you think? Well, that only captures part of the memory. Uh, the people who were left behind in Vietnam weren't merely translators. They were just about everybody. The big problem with the evacuation of Vietnam was that there was no prioritizing of high-risk Vietnamese, in part because the ambassador and the CIA station chief were against it. We had two top-ranking officials at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon who were, in fact, opposed to an evacuation because they both believed that negotiations might save Saigon, and that an evacuation might torpedo negotiations by creating chaos. There was this circular problem, so no one was planning adequately for an evacuation, and it ultimately devolved in every man and woman for themselves. That was the issue. If I remember correctly from your fabulous book, Decent Interval, Frank, uh, the U.S. ambassador and the CIA station chief might have been targeted by a communist influence operation to lull them into thinking that there would be a peaceful end to the Vietnam War. Is that correct or is my memory off? Your memory is right on because uh, our intelligence, uh, a best intelligence agent in Vietnam, a guy named Vo Van Ba, told us not once but twice on April 8th, just one week into the final month, that the communists were not going to stop for negotiations, that they were a mere sham to distract us from their real plan, which was to seize Saigon by force. The ambassador and the station chief hooked on to the idea of negotiations. They were seduced by French, by Hungarian diplomats, by Henry Kissinger, ultimately, and the Soviets into believing that negotiations were possible and that negotiations would make an evacuation unnecessary. There would be a ceasefire, an armistice, and so forth, and we'd be able to move Vietnamese out at will. The ambassador and the station chief believed this, so they slow-walked all preparations that might have gotten in the way of negotiations. But the, the bottom line is that Vo Van Ba, this agent, told us this in early, in early April, three weeks before the end, there would be no negotiations. The ambassador tried to suppress that intelligence. I went back to the agent directly two weeks before the end on April 17th and said again to him, are you sure the communists are intent on moving 
on Saigon that they will not allow for negotiations. He said to me, they not only will not allow for negotiations, they don't care if you pursue them. They don't care if you get rid of Nguyen Van Thieu, which was then the big order of the day, get rid of him and negotiations would go forward. He said to me, they are bent on being in Saigon by Ho Chi Minh's birthday, which was the second week in May. This was just a few weeks away. It left no room for so, negotiations and thus uh, evacuation planning should have gone forward uh, post haste. It didn't. So what happened, Frank? Where did you have this meeting, by the way, in some alleyway in Saigon? Where was this meeting? This particular agent uh, was based in Tainan province, right inside the communist command for the Saigon area and the Delta. And we used to smuggle him into Saigon to meet with his American case officer or me. I met with him. I'd been meeting with him since 1970, 1970, 71. And what would happen is that um, he would play dead in Tainan. He would get on a gurney in a hospital there. South Vietnamese case officers would wheel him onto an aircraft. He'd arrive in Saigon and dressed as a woman, come meet with me or his American case officers. In that final month, he met with me, dressed as an old woman. He began the conversation as he usually did by demanding a Budweiser because uh, he believed that Americans uh, American beer was terrific. It had been dropped along the Ho Chi Minh Trail system. Many communists had gotten uh, addicted to it, and he had. Then he demanded a um, Salem cigarette, which was Ho Chi Minh's favorite. And he'd take a puff of Salem, and then he'd get down to business. And every time I met with him from 1970 to the end, the business was breathtaking. He had a photographic memory. He was able to recall absolutely word by word, every last order that he had received through the communist command. He was right there at the center of things. He was like a spy in Hitler's bunker. And this last meeting, April 17th, 1975, he gave me the mother load. And it should have prompted an evacuation right away. I went back to the embassy with the report. Ambassador Martin and, and Tom Polgar, the station chief, both vetoed the dissemination of the report, I begged, with, begged them, I said, we've got to send this to headquarters. And so we sent it out, I sent it out through operational channels. And that particular report is what galvanized thinking in Kissinger's office and the uh, US command for the Pacific, Admiral Geiler, galvanized their thinking into preparing for a helicopter airlift. If they had not acted and acted on that agent's report, we wouldn't have had a final frequent win, the final evacuation by helicopter. Now, I don't want to lose the thread of that very serious story, but I have to stop and ask you, are you saying we dropped a beer on the Ho Chi Minh Trail? We planted beer along the Ho Chi Minh Trail and hoping, hoping to slow down the communist infiltrators. It was one of many uh, jokester schemes designed to stop the communists, and it wasn't very successful, obviously. Good Lord. So I hadn't heard that story before, and I thought, I thought I'd heard them all. Now, to get back to this very serious story, so you are saying that the most seasoned diplomats and CIA officers in the government, in Saigon, and the national security advisor to the president of the United States were conned by communist agents into believing there would be a lull and a peaceful transition to power in Saigon. 
Exactly so. But this wasn't guesswork. This was from our best agent. The CIA considered him our best agent. His code name was T.U. Hackle. His real name was Vovan Ba. He had been the top agent for the CIA from the beginning of the war, but certainly 1963 forward. After the war, the communists evaluated his operation and admitted that he had stolen every secret they had ever produced and given it to the CIA. So this guy had terrific credibility and the ambassador and the station chief simply shunted aside this information. Now there seems to be an uncanny and eerie parallel here going on in Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban have suggested that there could be a peaceful sharing of power in Kabul once US forces are completely gone. And yet there seem to be no signs of that as the Taliban sees uh, additional provincial capitals, districts, key checkpoints and so on and are closing in on the capital. What's your sense here as an experienced intelligence officer has been a similar in a similar situation? What does this tell you? Do you suspect, suspect the worst well, I suspect the worst because uh, that's exactly what happened in Saigon. The North Vietnamese realized that they, if they dangle the prospect of negotiations, they could throw off, throw off us, throw us off balance, and most importantly, dissuade us from reintroducing American air power. I think probably the Taliban are trying to seduce us into sort of the same kind of stand down posture so that they can proceed in their advance without fear of interference, US arms. Uh, it's a very smart strategy on their part, was very a smart strategy on North Vietnam's part, but with respect to North Vietnam, as I've just been saying, we got the goods on them. So we should have been able to react better than we did. And we didn't. Um, I talked to a senior former CIA officer recently on the podcast who talked about the present and future operations of the spy agency in Afghanistan. And he suggested, of course, that we'd be setting up stay behind operations. In other words, secret agents we leave in place when we leave. That was the plan for Vietnam as well. Uh, it didn't go so well, did it? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, there was a great deal of discussion about whether or not there should be stay behind operation, because after all, the ambassador and the station chief didn't believe there would be need for stay behind because we would be negotiating uh, a peace that would keep everybody there. But uh, the, the bottom line is stay behind operations are extremely dangerous. And Vovan Ba, my, the agent I've been talking about, agreed to stay behind. And within a few moments of the seizure of Saigon, literally April 30th, after we just left, he was betrayed to the communist. He was rolled up and rather than subject himself to interrogation, he hung himself by his belt. This was the nationalist Nathan Hale. He hung himself by his belt because stay behind operations and stay behind networks were virtually untenable in the security environment, environment that existed. Right. And this was complicated by the CIA leaving behind files that the uh, NVA just uh, collected like uh, Christmas gifts. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. So several so CIA assets were exposed when the North Vietnamese came rolling into uh, provincial capitals and the national capital itself. 
Exactly. And not only did we fail, CIA failed to destroy all of our files, particularly those up country, as we were running for the helicopters in the early stages of the communist offensive. But the entire defense attache's office, the Central Intelligence Organization of the South Vietnamese, their military command, they left intact all of the files which we had shared with them over time. So the communists literally had a blood list in these files of everybody who'd worked with us. And they used them to track down our collaborators. Because again, the evacuation was so hastily planned, so chaotic, so improvisatory against the ambassador's resistance, against the resistance of the CIA station chief, that there was no uh, systematic planning for the security of the people who might be left behind, nor was there an effort to pinpoint the high-risk Vietnamese who should be evacuated first. Mm. It was, it was, you know, defense attache office personnel, American CIA personnel. We were evacuating boyfriends, girlfriends. We were evacuating uh, golf partners. We weren't evacuating the high-risk Vietnamese. The CIA station chief Tom Bogar, in fact, postponed the evacuation of high-risk Vietnamese against what CIA headquarters was saying because he believed they could be used as negotiating pawns in a post-war Vietnam. So he delayed, he didn't take them out. And in the end, we only rescued about 500 of the 1,600 high-risk Vietnamese on the CIA's payroll. So this was a horrible situation. Again, in Afghanistan, it seems like deja vu all over again. I'm getting messages. Uh, other uh, Americans who worked with interpreter translators and our spies in Afghanistan are getting desperate pleas from these people saying, get me out. The Taliban knows where I am. I'm moving from place to place with my family at night. The assassination teams are after me. I've applied for and have been approved for a visa to get out. But the United States is doing nothing to get me out. And I only have days to live. It's a horrifying, slow-moving nightmare in Afghanistan. And uh, even though the Biden administration recently pledged to move thousands of interpreter translators and others who worked with us to Guam, perhaps, and other places, uh, nothing is happening, according to my sources. They're, they're, they're not screening these people quickly and ferrying them to the airport and getting them out. Well, in fairness, uh, Afghanistan is a very different situation. For one thing, you, you do have an evacuation scenario in Afghanistan. We didn't have one in Vietnam. And that evacuation scenario is, in fact, the Vietnam evacuation. It's a bad example, but it should have taught lessons. And number two, you have a date certain, drop dead date certain in Afghanistan. By September, goodbye all American influence and presence of any consequence there. We didn't have that. So the delay and the failure to prepare for an evacuation is unforgivable all the more in Afghanistan. But, but, but there is on the side of those who are going slow and playing a careful hand, an argument. And that is, were you to do something in the open were you to do something very obvious, it could very likely precipitate the attacks that you are trying to avoid and to escape. And panic. And, 
And exactly. And in Afghanistan, you have one additional ingredient, which we didn't have in Vietnam, which is a safety for those who might be left behind. And that, and this is not an excuse for not doing what we should, but that safety is the tribal setup. The individual, the individual tribes, the Pashtuns and so forth, will protect their own, even if they did deal with the Americans, certainly if the tribes themselves mm. were pro-American or enlisted in the American effort in Afghanistan. We didn't have that in Vietnam. There were no it's constituencies, uh, indigenous constituencies that could protect those we might leave behind. So it was a horrible situation. And the only consolation vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan is that tribal, those tribal networks that could provide some, some shield. For those well, that's, that's optimistic, and I and I hope you're right. But uh, the evidence so far is that these interpreter translators and others who work for them are just desperate and in hiding in uh, in the capital and the provincial capitals, and uh, their days are numbered. Now, the subtitle. Well, let, let Let me just interrupt you there because also sure. the pandemic shut down the embassy and slowed down. As I understand it, my brother served in Afghanistan, so I'm very sensitive to the situation there. He was a civilian working for a private contractor. But in any case, uh, there, 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 were, there have been preparations made sub rosa for evacuation. And most importantly, there is not a documents problem or a documentation problem in Afghanistan. It's an issuance problem. There, I think they're called the special immigration visas. Uh, they have been in, in effect, I think, since 2009, maybe earlier. So if you were in danger as an Afghan, you could apply for that. The problem is the pandemic shut down the embassy and the consulate so that they've been very slow in gearing up to issue those departure papers that are necessary to be a, a legitimate evacuee. Ultimately, you know what's going to happen, Jeff. They just throw all that paperwork aside and cram people onto aircraft, which looks like what's being planned at the moment. But uh, unlike yeah. Vietnam, again, you have several, you have Kandar, you have Kabul, you have several pickup points that are disparate. Whereas in Saigon, it's all Saigon or in the Delta. It wasn't yeah. all over the Hell's Half Acre, uh, which you had to worry about to get people well. out of the country. At the moment, it's that way, but maybe Kandahar and other places will fall. Um, there's another big difference in Vietnam. We could fly to aircraft carriers offshore. There are no air aircraft carriers offshore uh, from yep. Afghanistan. There is no shore. Uh, there is uh, a really inoperable overland route to Pakistan. Pakistan is not friendly uh, to us in this regard. Uh, neither are the Central Asian states bordering Afghanistan. So it's a real logistical problem. You'd need uh, lots and lots of planes for an emergency evacuation of these uh, interpreter translators and, and others. Yep. Uh, and Jeff, and Jeff, mm -hmm. also, that means that you are vulnerable to surface to air missiles, right. uh, which we were in Vietnam. The only difference is the Taliban doesn't have its own air force. South Viet North Vietnamese did, and they brought it to bear on the, the night before the final day, destroyed Saigon's uh, airstrip mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that we had to go to helicopters. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the threat from the ground is dangerous, it, particularly because so much in Afghanistan depends on either convoy or uh, airlift. The subtitle of your book, Decent Interval, is an insider's account 
of Saigon's indecent end. Now, the idea what, behind that is that there was going to be a decent interval for the U.S. to get out. Um, and it's this situation in Afghanistan seems to be turning into yet another indecent interval, an indecent end. Um, do you see any possible deus ex machina, some sort of rescue effort that's going to uh, prevent a calamitous end in Kabul? Uh, I am not qualified to say what could prevent a calamitous end in Kabul after so, so many years, which is the longest war we've been waging. I do believe I am a realist, uh, and I was a realist in Vietnam because that's what the CIA taught me to be. I think that American interests in both countries had diminished to the vanishing point and that they didn't require or they didn't validate the loss of any more American life. In Afghanistan, we accomplished, as Biden has said, primary objectives, getting rid of uh, Osama bin Laden and so on, and the squashing of uh, ISIS and others. What one wants to do is to have a capability in the aftermath, be it through stay-behind operations or drone strikes and what have you, which we never had in Vietnam. We had the Phoenix program, nothing like the drone capabilities. And I think in post-war post-American Afghanistan, you're going to have a very active uh, enemy elimination program, very distasteful to talk about, but it's going to be far more effective than anything that we could have contemplated in Vietnam, had that been our objective, to ruin the communist command, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's going to be a very active, and I've read all that one can read, uh, in the public about this. Drone strikes are not good at long distance. You need targeting on the ground. You need cell phones on the ground that can draw in the, the missiles to where the bad guys are and so forth. All of that is technologically open to being addressed. And so I am less concerned about the security implications for the United States than I might be otherwise. With respect to Vietnam, the irony is there were no security implications in the end for the United States. Uh, <laughs> the dominoes didn't collapse as everyone had been predicted. So uh, the horrible thing was much bloodshed about nothing. And in, in retrospect, our only honor coming out of Vietnam was the little we were able to do to rescue those who were left behind. The little, unfortunately, is the, uh, the, the qualifier there that word. Frank, every conversation I've had with you over the decades has been illuminating and bracing. And uh, I'm really glad to have you back again on the Spy Talk podcast. I've been talking with Frank Snepp, former CIA officer and author of Decent Interval, an insider's account of Saigon's indecent end. For more on this and other related material, check out the Spy Talk newsletter on Substack. Meanwhile, stay with us for Gene's feature on a hugely successful spying hit on TikTok. Maria Comstock and her dad, Carrie, have a huge hit on their hands a TikTok series about his career in military intelligence, 
part of which was spent in Moscow. Asking a retired spy the questions we really want to know, part 15. Why were you chosen to become a spy? Because I scored very high on the defense language aptitude badly. Was being a spy lonely? No. Have you ever had a gun held to your head? Not to my head. <laughs> Where to? Just pointed at me. Some episodes of Asking a Retired Spy Questions We Really Want to Know have gotten millions upon millions upon millions of views, more than any nightly newscast. We asked Maria and her dad, Carrie, who she has dubbed, by the way, Agent Buttercup, why they think they're experiencing such phenomenal success. Who knows? I still can't get my head around it. What are your thoughts, Maria? Well, I just provide what the people want. I, I think the most interesting part is I have my analytics on TikTok. And it's not just people from the U.S. watching our videos. I, we've got a big audience in the Philippines just <laughs> looking at our American spy. The most concerning part is our Russian audience, I think, since he spied on the Russians. But it's just interesting little factoids that <laughs> make up my audience. How many Russian Union at that time? So uh, yes. How many Russian followers do you have? It won't tell me. It just tells me percentages, and it tells me per like video. So some will have like oh five percent of your viewers were from Russia, or big big from the United Kingdom. There's a big audience, but you mostly the U.S. Of course. What chord do you think you've hit here? Um. That's really a. A good question. Right. I don't know. I, I, I'm afraid that uh, a lot of it is, uh, you know, the common conspiracy craze that seems to be prevalent in throughout society, worldwide society. Um, and, you know, to me, that's a little concerning. Asking retired by the questions we really want to know, part 20. What do you think is the most trusted news source? I like PBS, but I don't stay with a single source. We try and stay away from, we have a lot of comments that are like, oh, Pizzagate, or was JFK, did someone plan 9-11? But we, we try not to go into that realm at all. Well, so. you have said a few <laughs> things, though, about disinformation and your oh. worry about people who get information from only one news source and so forth, right? Correct. Yeah, we're, we are pretty centrist type people. We believe that neither side has all the answers. You have gotten some political pushback, though, haven't you? Um, there are a number of folks that attribute our comments to one side or the other. But it changes every video what side they think we're on. <laughs> right. The, so recently I mentioned... Uh, we tend to end the videos with a, a zener, shall you say. Uh, we try and get something that, one, makes people listen all the way through, and two, gives them a little thought, something to put their mind into. And recently, we used the word sophistry because we feel that the disinformation that's occurring currently is causing some significant problems. Asking retired by the questions we really want to know, part 22. What will lead to humanity's destruction? Sophistry. So do you feel that through these videos, you're trying to counter some of the disinformation? 
Yes, that that's really not the primary reason. We do it because it's fun. I, I would say we've had made some political comments, not that vaccines are very political, but we're, you know, get your vaccine. We're trying to create some positive social change. We made two videos on that, I believe. But there's some people who are like, oh, if Agent Buttercup gets it, I'll get it. Asking retired about the questions we really want to know, part 20. Which vaccine did you get? Moderna, both doses. I mean, it seems like we truly made some people want to get a vaccine, which is mind blowing. How do you come up with the questions? Um, usually comments. Every, every video, the very first line is comment questions for the next part. And so I'll scroll through and they're sorted by most likes. So the people kind of decide what's asked next. Um, and I'll, every few days I'll look through and just, I have a notes app that compiles for the next video. How many comments do you get? Oh, I think our record is 15 or 16,000 per video on a video. So it's not like I can look through all of them. So I've noticed some themes in the questions that are asked. One of them is definitely World War III. <laughs> Well, the first time we asked about it, that was probably one of our biggest videos. And we said, oh, there it is. That's our spark point. Asking retired by the questions we really want to know, part 15. In the event World War III broke out, what are the first three things you do to prepare? Make sure I have gas in the cars, I have non-perishable food in the pantry, and all of my valuables consolidated in a safe place. Do you think World War III will happen in your lifetime? Maybe not in mine, but my heart goes out to you. Um, it's on everyone's mind, I guess. And I think it's not like we're trying to predict a World War III. Papa or Carrie is just talking about like, you know, current issues and plausible leads that could spark, you know, if we don't help with polarization and stuff can lead to really terrible things. Your thoughts? Well, I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up uh, in during the Cold War and entered the service during the Cold War, was in the service th during the fall of the Soviet Union. I've been behind the Iron Curtain. I've been to Berlin both before and after the wall came down. I was in the old, the former Soviet Union and in Russia for my honeymoon. Um, so I see a lot of things that could easily go sideways. Um, it's not that they necessarily will, but it doesn't take much as we've seen, um, especially in, in this political rancor that we currently have to send things off the deep end quickly. You also talk a lot about Area 51. Asking a retired spy the questions we really wanna know, part three. What is Area 51 being used for? Test area. For what? Things that need testing. Everyone wants to know about Area 51. <laughs> You know, it's a common, this last video we did, everybody want, now that it's a current event, everybody wants to know about UFOs. Um, obviously, what a lot of our, our uh, viewers don't realize, there are some sentient comments within that realize exactly what I did and where we are. Um, but 
a lot of people glamorize all this and think that I have all this world level of information, but you know, the way to keep things secret is to only tell the people who need to know about them. <laughs> so area 51 is not in my area of expertise. Though he does. I was stationed at Beale Air Force Base during my time in the service, which was home to the SR-71 and its CIA precursor YF-12A was operated from Area 51 and tested early in its existence when Lockheed and Skunk Works first came out with uh, the SR and the scramjets. But the, um, you know, that was my closest, U-2s, TR-1s, and SR-71s. Um, Maria, why is that an area of such interest, do you think? So I think it's just a pop culture reference that everyone knows about. Like if he started talking about the SR-71, no one has any, any idea what that is, you know, but everyone knows what Area 51 is. So we try and keep it, you know, <laughs> so everyone knows what we're talking about. Well, and glamorized in the Independence Day movies. So. Right, exactly. Uh -huh. So, so as you've said, part of this is intended to teach people a little bit or make them think a little bit about issues they haven't. But you also throw in kind of crazy questions in there, like right. like pineapple on your pizza and, you know, what's right. your favorite dessert? We kind of lighten it up a little bit. So we always have one fun question. Asking retires by the questions we really want to know, part 21. What's your favorite dessert? I like key lime pie. Well, and we've got some huge feedback on some of those too we which accidentally hit some spots sometimes or like, some inside joke that we never know about like, like we I, I asked him i don't remember what the question was but he said oh i love macaroni with hot dogs in it um apparently that's an inside joke so we just got thousands of comments about it maria did you always know he was a spy he didn't tell me until i was a sophomore in high school um, I'm a, I'm a junior in college now. This was what, five years ago, four years ago. Um, oh, forever. But, right. <laughs> so that, that is a big portion of my life that I didn't know, but I always, I always thought he was a spy. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't even know where it came from, but I would always be like, oh, you were secretly a spy, like a weatherman. Sure. A bus driver. Sure. He was also a weatherman and a bus driver, but I think more importantly, he was a spy, right? Maria, did you ever feel deceived by this, that he didn't tell you until you were in high school? A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Dad, a little bit. answer for this. Right. <laughs> why did it, again, why does she need to know? She, I, I think she probably just didn't put two to two together because my wife um, has mentioned it, I believe, and she may not have just realized but I thought um, she was joking, probably. When we first started dating, you know, she was probing, asking questions. And I said, well, I was a, in the service for a while and she probed and- See, he doesn't tell outright, you got to probe. Yeah, she didn't, she, you know, it, I do not know what I do not know. I don't know what is classified any longer. I know that I had clearance at a level that required reclassification every 30 years. It's been more than 30 years, and I don't know what was or was not reclassified. So it's better to just not say anything. But you're doing these TikTok videos. 
Well, yeah, but I'm not saying anything. <laughs> well, you're saying something, but you're not saying right. well, Yeah, but nothing that's not easily provable, um, you know, with just a little research and a little due diligence. And he doesn't want to check what's classified or not because he doesn't want to like find his search history. The well, where, FBI. Would you, where would you where would you check? <laughs> I will just I would come without out. access. How do you even check what's well, classified right. or not? I don't know. Call it's the president. Just, Ask him. <laughs> no need to go there. So, Carrie, for you, this has brought some um, unexpected, perhaps, attention. I understand. Well, yes and no. I've never been recognized. She gets recognized in the street and when she's out and about. I've never been recognized. You don't leave the house as much as I leave the house. Well, we work at home, so that's true, but... You also don't interact with teenagers who watch TikTok. You told well, me some your of... dad is getting hit on by people oh, who watch these videos. Oh, right. Oh, gosh. So he, yeah, he really that, is James Bond. He's become a, a sex yeah. comment, A comment in, in TikTok is, is not what I consider a level of being hit on, but it bothers her. So. Yeah. So here's what I would like to do. Carrie, if you don't mind, I want to play the role of your daughter for a second and ask you a couple of questions, sort of a la TikTok. Would that be okay? Well, we'll see where we go with it. Because by the way, does he know in advance what you're going to ask him or do you just no, spring these questions his, Some him? of his genuine reactions are just hilarious. So I, I like to get him on the spot. I mean, sometimes he, he'll need a second to think if I ask him like a more complicated question and we'll refilm. But usually it's just, we go one take and they post it. So good luck. He, he's good at diverting. So okay. <laughs> you've got this. All right. You said in one of the TikToks that your favorite spy book was Spy Who Came In From The Cold and also a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So what's your favorite spy movie? You know, one that I like that, that's got a lot of soul to it, but is a lot less plausible is uh, Spy Game with uh, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. Who's a bigger threat, China or Russia? I would argue currently that that's uh, almost equal. The, the, in my mind, Russia has uh, a, a little more um, bigger chip on their shoulder, but China is much more calculating. How would you describe Putin? Um, you know, Russia historically has always been invaded and conquered. And one of the things that I learned before I went over there um, was that the, the people themselves tend to believe that there will always be another conqueror and they're used to having an autocrat. Um, and it just feels more natural to them. How big a threat is cyber warfare? I think that is huge. We, we, I'm sure we don't know as much as, as we need to know. Um, and I think it's probably our biggest issue right now. What do you think of TikTok fame? I don't feel famous, so nothing. 
recognized on the street and you don't feel famous? Humble. Well, but the only time I'm recognized on the street is when it's a friend, somebody who has has a friend of Maria's, like a, one of Maria's friend's fathers. Maria, your turn. Oh gosh. What's next? Part 23. <laughs> and 24 and 25. And so on. We're trying to think of a new series. I think I'm gonna have him tell his spy stories. Um, like fireside spy stories is that's probably the next release oh yeah this is happening <laughs> and uh, maria are you loving this this is great well the uh, tiktok pays me per view and we get some views so i am indeed loving this <laughs> maria says she makes about 800 dollars a month from her tiktok series not bad for a college kid if you want to hear more, you can find Maria and her dad, Carrie, at Maria Isabel Comstock on TikTok. They're having a lot of fun, Jeff. It was a lot of fun to listen to, Gene, and I guess that's better than delivering newspapers. Anyway, that's another edition of the Spy Talk podcast. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Thanks a lot for joining us. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.